watchers in the fourth dimension. Looks like Dracula's castle. He drowned in the middle of a perfectly dry room. Abandon hope for ye who enter here. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And if you've got any sense, you'll get some bitty buys. This episode, we're back to gritty realism as we contend with the mind of evil. And to clarify, by gritty realism, I mean as close to gritty realism as you can get when you're talking about a story involving an alien brain parasite that feeds on evil thoughts. But first, a quick look at the mail that's come in since we last recorded, which is in the hands of Don. For episode on the Ambassadors of Death, Bill Lamont says, I had to wait 40 years to see Cyril Shapps as the Jewish master forger in Masterpiece Theater's Private Schultz. He was wonderful. I've heard that the origin of the practice of sending and receiving ambassadors was an exchange of hostages. Other than that, I have to take your word for it about mistakes in the serial Ambassadors of Death. I loved all your jokes, even when I didn't quite get them. I've heard of Quatermass. I know it's an inspiration for Doctor Who, but I don't get the specific connection here. It's, it's basically Quatermass with the serial numbers filed off. Nathan Laws <laughs> says, I agree with the majority of this one. I've always found it to be the single low point in season seven, which otherwise has three fantastic serials. I will say that keeping the three astronauts isn't a plot hole. We know General Carrington communicated with the aliens to get them to send their ambassadors. It seems that he promised three of Earth's ambassadors would go up at the same time, possibly as a cultural exchange. At some point, the aliens realized that these guys had no clue what was going on. It's definitely true. And they couldn't reach the ambassadors they had sent down, so they basically made them think they were somewhere safe. This makes sense because it's less psychologically damaging to those you're keeping captive and requires less resources on your part to maintain a jail with guards and whatnot. Uh, J.M. Casey says, I really like a lot of the things about this story. It leaves me asking loads of questions, like why we never heard from this particular batch of aliens again. I think they were shings. They killed a bunch of people just because mother guys told them to. The ending is maybe a bit <laughs> anticlimactic, but the build-up to get there is great, and I enjoy most of the characters, as well as the conspiracy thriller feel the story has, which is something the Pertwee era would visit again once or twice. I can't remember if it was Don or Riley who described Spearhead at times as feeling kind of proto-X-Files, but I think the story is where that feel really comes to the fore. I have great memories of reading this novelization as a kid. The scene with the thugs getting stuck to the car was a highlight, and unlike with the Silurians, the TV story didn't disappoint at all in comparison. Philip Cully, via Instagram, regarding the title cards, the twang is one of the best things about Ambassadors, which is one of Pertwee's best. If you don't like it, then I just don't know. Yeah, Philip. <laughs> Dave Columbus, also via Instagram, said, not the best story, not the worst story, but a great summary by the watchers. Thanks. Regarding Liz driving the car in the chase, that was a stuntman as there was a problem with Caroline John and the car. I believe it was that she couldn't drive Bessie well enough. I can't remember the source right now, but the hat and coat were used to hide the fact that it was a man in the driver's seat. Too bad. She looked really good in that hat. <laughs> or did the man in the seat look or good Or did the man hat? look really good in the hat? Who knows? Both. And as far as Inferno, someone whose name I am going to just mangle, I Dingleson? I think it's L. My apologies. Van Gielsen. Best story of the season. Dave Columbus, once again, says, Great ending to a strong first season for Pertwee. I agree the green werewolves were a bit out of place because there was no proper explanation for the origin. Should have been Robot Yeti. That's all I'm going to say. Those, for me, <laughs> is what prevented this story from being a 10 out of 10. I would also have liked a more plausible reason for Stallman being the way he was. He gave me reminders of Zeroff in The Underwater Menace. Nothing is a world can stop me now. Of doing something because he can without having a good reason. The discovery of the gas was a bit of a weak point also. The acting, direct and stunts were all top-notch, except for one tiny misstep. Why was there a control box for power hookup in the hut in Alt-Earth's control room? It's first seen in episode 3 when the Doctor escapes from Benton using the Venusian Karate. It's also in episode 4 when the Doctor's wearing the radiation suit. And in episode 5, while Alt-Petra is trying to figure out how to stop the drill. And in episode 6, as Sutton holds the Primords at bay with the coolant hose. I'm just going to chalk this up to, there was only one control room set. Deal with it. <laughs> they didn't anticipate on anyone as obsessive as us, going over every single little detail. Exactly. <laughs> and that concludes the mail. Thank you, Don. And as a reminder, we love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at watches4d at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watches4D. We do love to read out your mail. 
back to the mind of evil and moving into our behind the scenes segment, this story was written by Don Hooten, whose swift delivery of his scripts for Inferno had impressed producer Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix, who commissioned him to write a treatment for a second story, which was tentatively titled The Pandora Machine. Scripts were formally commissioned in August 1970, with a request that the master be incorporated into the storyline. Looking to a clockwork orange for inspiration, Hooten wrote a story about a machine that altered criminal minds with the aim of rehabilitation and the potentially sinister implications of forcing someone to be good. However, Hooten was concerned that this idea on its own would not be enough to fill six episodes. His wife, Pick Sen Lim, who is Captain Chin Lee herself, don't you just love that nepotism, suggested the addition of a subplot involving an international peace conference. Of course, the Pandora machine, as all other stories did, went through several changes during the scripting phase. Originally, the Keller machine was to be called the Melusifus Box. The master's pseudonym was to be Emil Dalbiak rather than Keller. The brigadier was to be captured with the Doctor and Joe at Stangmore Prison, and the master was to hypnotize him to change the route of the missile to facilitate its capture. And also, Joe was to be menaced by her biggest fear, which would have turned out to be bats. Someone clearly was a big fan of Batman. <laughs> Finally, in a late stage of scripting, the serial's title was changed to The Mind of Evil, a title that Hooten strongly disliked. Assigned as director for this story was Timothy Coombe, who we had previously seen directing Doctor Who and the Silurians. Coombe had hoped to film the prison scenes at a real prison, but was denied permission. As a result, he turned to Dover Castle in Kent, and the Doctor was swiftly given a line to explain the use of a medieval fortress as a prison. Coombe frequently had issues during recording, often running out of time during recording sessions and running way over budget, despite the ample funds that had been assigned to the story. Consequently, Letts decided never to use him again on future Doctor Who serials. Returning as costumer, we have the final contribution of Bobby Bartlett, who we most recently saw contributing to the Seeds of Death. She had an interesting time with this one, as she had outsourced the manufacture of the Stangmore prison uniforms to a freelancer who had left the well-regarded Bermans and Nathans relatively recently. This freelancer was shortly after arrested for theft from his former employers, without having completed his work on Doctor Who. Bartlett had to go and visit him in prison to find out the location of the materials before she could then hand them over to someone else to complete the work. Gotta watch out for those Etsy sellers, man. <laughs> yeah, you do. Riley would know. Working as designer, we have the final appearance of Ray London, whose work we'd previously seen on Season 3's The War Machines and Season 6's The Crotons. While this story killed off the Doctor Who careers of Don Hooten, Timothy Coombe, Bobby Butler, and Ray London, the one member of the production team who does survive it is composer Dudley Simpson, who here makes his 16th contribution to the show. One final note from behind the scenes. Barry Letts was able to secure assistance on the production from the Royal Air Force by making mention of the considerable assistance that the army had provided to production on the invasion two years earlier. Isn't that inter-service rivalry just wonderful? <laughs> anyway, the RAF loaned them a real, albeit unprimed, Thunderbird missile, along with a number of troops from the 36th Heavy Air Defense Regiment as extras to play the Master's men, and filming was allowed to take place at both the RAF Manston and RAF Swingate bases. And even with all that free assistance from the military, Coombe still found a way to go over budget. Impressive. With that final anecdote, we will move into our short summary, which is with Riley this episode. The Doctor and Joe head to a prison to witness the Ludovico technique from A Clockwork Orange, but instead of having Beethoven running through their minds, the Keller machine has a mind of its own and kills people by terrorizing them with their own personal fears. As the Doctor begins to investigate, he gets pulled away by the Brigadier to help him with managing the first World Peace Conference, because for a peace conference, there's a large amount of death happening. As the Doctor begins to get pulled into an international espionage movie with the Master doing his best impersonation of Gene Parmesan from Arrested Development, Joe gets pulled into a prison break movie. Remember when this was a science fiction show about the wonders of history and the universe? Anyway, with the help of a shotgun and Ron Swanson, the master gets the doctor to do his best Shatner impression while being tormented by the killer machine. The doctor survives and reunites with Joe. The master convinces freed prisoners to do work for him by stealing a missile that just happens to be out and about during the conference, and the killer espresso machine learns how to transport itself. So the master gets scared and asks the doctor to lasso the machine. The brigadier figures out where the missile was brought to, and so we have a military shootout in a prison. Again, this is a science fiction show that could go anywhere and do any time in the universe. Could they at least be using laser guns or something? So the Brigadier saves the Doctor and Joe from the Master's henchmen. The machine escapes from the electric lasso, and the Doctor bravely uses a prisoner as a human shield to stop it. The Master still intends to go through with his original plan, 
fire the missile on London, start World War Three, uh, profit. Well, it doesn't matter because the doctor uses the killer machine, the promise of returning his dematerialization circuit, and a karate chop to thwart the master. But in the chaos, the master escapes with the circuit, which allows him full freedom to leave Earth, a fact which he gleefully rubs in the doctor's face. The end. That was accurate. Yeah. Episode one. This is a story that was only restored to full color, I want to say in like 2011. So I grew up with this one in black and white, and it's still astounding to me when I see it in color. I'm still not used to it, but I dig it. It's one I don't think it really takes away or would give back to because it just there's not a lot of things that they have to hide since there's not really that many aliens involved. No, but having it in black and white does give it like a wonderful noir feel. Fair. They maybe should have hidden some of the things that occur later. <laughs> maybe. However, one thing I noticed is that this episode starts with the doctor not being a complete dick for once. And I appreciated Ooh. that. But then it gets really, really loud, first with the synthesizer and then all the yelling in the prison. <laughs> but things get brutal really quickly. As Don mentioned, the prison is loud. You see Barnum getting dragged off to have the process be put in him. It gets dark pretty quick here. I don't like it. I don't like this whole premise of brainwashing or... Removing the evil lobotomy. <sighs> yeah, that <laughs> lobotomy, that one. I, I enjoyed this story, but trying to figure out the master's plan and the timeline of going from, I would like to steal a missile, which is about to be dropped in the ocean. I don't know how he found out about it. So what I need to do is invent a machine that removes evil <laughs> that machine will then be apparently become alive in some way i will install this machine in a prison but also have it somehow take the place of any other type of punishment which cannot have taken a short amount of time i mean we're talking government agencies here <laughs> just so he can have the people intercept the missile that they only knew the route they were taking after it'd been taken over yeah yeah. There are some issues with the plot. That's all I'm saying. Yes, but it's well executed. It is. I had a, a hell of a good time with it, but trying to think about it makes my head hurt. Yes. Despite how brutal and terrible the prison was and how loud it was, I do think that all prisoners should have neckties. It's just such a good look. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really, they look so snappy in those yeah, things. Yeah, like it's so much better than orange. Yeah. Or the white mm -hmm. and black stripes. It is a step up. It's a bit classier. I mean, they're in a castle. They yeah. are. So yeah. They have yeah. to be a little bit classier. So a necktie <laughs> is the new orange. That's good to know. <laughs> I also found out that this is the one incarnation of the doctor I would not want to go to a movie theater with or to a presentation oh. because he talks over everything. And that's just that's just rude. And the way it goes about it, it's just he's talking bad about it. And then he's like, oh, well, can I continue? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. As I continue to, and I'm like, man, just stop. He's definitely got a rude streak. Well, he's also really full of himself, as he should be. I mean, he's the doctor. For example, in this first episode, after we have our first death due to the machine, and he gets back and forth with Kettering, and Kettering does the whole, if you were a scientist, you'd understand. And like hit the doctor just, if I were a scientist, right at that moment, if I don't know if you remember 80s sitcom television, but that's when they would add the, the effect of the crowd going, ooh, <laughs> right there. He is a bit rude to Professor Kettering, but I don't dislike it here. I think the Keller machine is meant to be unsettling. So the Doctor immediately being against it isn't that surprising. Him being against it is fine. It's the backhand attitude that he has. So I'm like, just be up front. Stop this whole double act of... Oh, no, I'm listening to you as I continue to talk bad about you. I'm like, just, <laughs> yeah. just go out and do yeah. it. Yeah, it's, it's the smug, bad audience member thing. It's yeah, really frustrating. All right, let's talk about unit. Why the hell are they handling security arrangements for a World Peace Conference? That doesn't seem like it's in their remit. <laughs> the plot necessitated the plot. I've thought of a BS reason. Go for it. Clearly, there hasn't been enough strange occurrences happening to justify the line item of how much they cost. So the powers that be are letting them do other stuff to justify their existence. Okay, I'll buy it. The only other thing for me is that it's to actually punish the Brigadier mm -hmm. because he's been giving them so much crap in the past that they're like, oh, okay, you know what? You get this nonsense. Have fun. Is that why they're so bad at it? 
so that they'll never have to do it again. <laughs> I would like to point out the concept of a world peace conference. So the UN and other international bodies are like, what have we been doing this entire time? <laughs> like, obviously, we, we should have just been holding a world peace conference. That was the whole key to it all. Da-doy. But as we're at the peace conference, we get introduced to Chin Li. And I'm actually really excited that we get a captain who's a woman from China. Yeah. 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 I was very pleasantly surprised about that. And I really enjoyed her. Yates really enjoyed her, too. I really like the fact that she wasn't just a bad guy. Yes. She was being mind controlled, but, you know, she was just a person. She was cool. And then, you know, Yates had to then be gross and misogynistic and <laughs> that guy. <laughs> and which is why Yates is not as good as Benton. But come on, like any of us believe that Yates is straight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is all just an act. Oh, boy. I did see that one of the possible episode ti or series titles for this was called Man Hours. So I thought that maybe that would work out well with Yates then. <laughs> Man Hours at a prison surrounded okay. by a bunch of other men. This was the weirdest episode of Oz I've ever seen. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting thing, we go back to the prison. Upper management actually says, hey, you need to double check the machine. And he's like, oh, well, do I really have to? And they're like, no, but you do. <laughs> and he ends up doing it. And I'm like, what? They did something like actually competent and telling them, hey, you need to go do this thing. And he was going to go do it. We actually didn't have an instance of the bad boss or the person that's just so up their own stuff. It's like, okay, I don't want it, but I'm going to. And he tries and drowns, but that's okay. <laughs> yes. But it happened, and I was excited that it wasn't a horrible boss. I agree completely. I, I was really happy the avoidance of that trope. As much as I have some issues with what eventually happens with this machine, I kind of like the way it you know did their, their worst fear. And that kind of stuff. That was very interesting. I like how as it gets more powerful, it slowly gets more and more of a mind of its own. You see it here activating as Kettering's working on it. And obviously, we already see more and more power as it eventually gains the ability to teleport. This is also an instance where I didn't expect him to die in the first episode. No. No. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess you're not going to be the guy that's in the way of the plot happening. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in peace conference land, Chin Li is busy killing off the Chinese delegate and stealing his papers, claiming that someone else stole them and burning them. I mean, the master's got her doing quite a lot of stuff. Which I have to say is really not suspicious at a children's playground, a woman in a Chinese military uniform, walking to a basket, lighting something <laughs> on fire and just standing perfectly still. Not conspicuous at all. No. No, nothing. And then the brigadier casually slaps a D-notice on the death of the Chinese delegate, and that's basically like a notice that the British government puts out to prevent any press coverage whatsoever of something. Oh. So that was a bit totalitarian. Yes, well, I think for a specific period of time, I think that's okay. It's like, let us at least investigate first. Yeah. I'm a little bit more okay with that. Don, you mentioned, I think, that the time for the run-up to make this plot work is quite long. And it's mentioned that Emil Keller installed the machine a year ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This is the long game for the master. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even then, I don't think there's quite enough time for all this to have happened. And it's an insane plot. Yeah. And we eventually we discover who his assistant was and how little that makes sense. Well, at the end of episode one, we have a wonderful callback because the doctor faces mm. a fear. That fear was a previous serial. That was also written by Don Hooten. But wouldn't it have been a better cliffhanger that when the doc is confronted with his greatest fear, instead of it being the fires of Inferno, it was the quarks? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the Zarbi do show up later on when he's in the machine. <laughs> they do. <laughs> that cliffhanger does give us plus one to the Pertwee gun count. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, it does. We get a lot. Episode two. This is so sad. Because I never was invested into it as much before because I didn't really, I mean, I appreciate Benton, but I feel so sorry about him losing his shot as, a, as an intelligence officer. That is so sad. Oh, because he Cause loses Chin Lee. Yeah, he loses, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, Chin Lee's really good. Yeah, and he gets attacked yeah. by the machine from a distance, so. 
Mm-hmm. It seems like in this one, the brigadier was just having a really bad day. He was just All took on were. some of the doctor's jerkiness in this episode. He, it's been a while since he was able to kill some Silurians, so he's pretty cranky. Although in one episode, we see the doctor waking him up in his office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe there's some problems at home or he doesn't even get a cot. I don't know, but I can kind of see why he was in a bad mood. I think he's so busy with the peace conference. He isn't sleeping and is working through the night and is just cranky because he's so sleep deprived. And since we didn't have the bad boss on the bad guy side, we get the bad boss in the break. So it's fine. (laughs) So you have to have a certain amount of bad bosses in each series. Yes. (laughs) Just going back to Benton and his intelligence work, it was pretty cool to see him doing that again. It took me right back to the invasion when he was tailing the Doctor and Jamie in the first and second episodes in plain clothes. So that was a really nice throwback. I really enjoyed it. Benton's my new favorite, guys, just so you know. We, we figured that out last time. <laughs> well, again, it's highly superior to Yates. He doesn't get himself kidnapped, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. But we do get Joe saving the doctor. We do. Joe has some yes. pretty good moments in this serial. She's she's very active. She's very active, and she's more physical than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like she kind of harkens back to Jamie a little bit in that she takes physical action as opposed to being the smart one. I would argue that she does the most action out of our three mains between you know the Doctor and the Brigadier and her. Yeah, the Brigadier gets yeah. his hero moments later he in does. the serial. At the very end, Anthony, that's in episode six. I said later in the serial. Most of what the Brigadier does is talk on the phone and look upset. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> yeah. Job. He and I clearly do the same thing. <laughs> also, they really wanted to make sure that we knew it was going to be the master before he took off his face because it was someone messing with the phones. Yeah, and it was the same outfit from last time. I kind of yeah. wish they'd held off on the actual master reveal and just like showed his hands a little bit and not gave the game away so quickly. Yeah, it could have been held off mm-hmm. on that. That's it. Let's talk about the master in his chauffeur driven car, just with his fat cigar. I mean, that's a good look for him. It is, but I love him. But that's why I said if they'd held off, because instead of having a mysterious character whose hands you only see and stuff like that, you just see him sitting in a car for an episode. And I think they could have done something just a little bit to to ratchet up and make it a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, that would have been cool. Mm -hmm. There are two other things. While we're on villains, let's talk about Mela, who we meet. And he's just a bastard from the beginning. He reminds me of, unfortunately, the Space Pirates. He reminds me of that guy. (laughs) I forget his name, but he was just a dick at the beginning, and he remained a dick throughout. I have done my best to forget about the Space Pirates, and I don't appreciate you bringing it back (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but that's just, that's what he reminded me of, because he was just like this awful guy, and no one likes him, and he's bad to everybody, and he's the worst. You compare him to, like, Regan from The Ambassadors of Death, and Regan had, like, a charisma. He was a bad guy, but you couldn't help but like him, whereas Mela's just a bad guy who is just a dick. That's because Regan's got style. Yeah. Mela, not so much. The Doctor keeps name dropping famous people and it's just so frustrating i'm like don't really you're gonna name drop mao zedong this was another instance where i'm like was this supposed to be like he's playing the guy but it comes off as being totally serious so now you're hanging out with communist leaders really yeah but ignoring his his name dropping in an obnoxious way he's i felt so bad for the brigadier yes because the doctor is really you're being an unhelpful dick. Sorry. He's he's being unhelpful and he's like showing off and bragging the fact yeah. that he can speak different languages. Also, is this the first time on the show that we've had subtitles? Yes. At least yes. for something okay. the doctor's saying, yes. Yeah. Okay. It's such a such a strange thing to happen for the show. It's just, you know, considering that we've had so many times where we've been different times in history, different places in history for us to now suddenly throw subtitles on the screen. I think that it was necessary because it needed to show the doctor gaining Fu Pang's trust. I, I think Fu Pang was destined to ignore the brigadier or not really show him any respect. And then the doctor comes in, speaks to him in Mandarin, acknowledges that he knows his leader, which may well have been bluster, but equally, I think for the time, maybe not, because I don't think the West realized how terrible Mao was. Because of that, Fu Pang goes, oh, this man knows our customs. He knows our people. He knows, he knows our leader. I can trust him. 
But it doesn't help the brigadier. It helps Fu Pang <sighs> engage in the investigation a little bit. Okay, barely, but all right. Fine, Anthony. <laughs> uh, I just, what I've noticed a lot with this doctor is that he just likes to show off and he's arrogant and snarky and I don't like it. He's smug. Yes. He is obnoxiously smug. And that's why, okay, at the end, I'm going to skip a bit. We're supposed to feel bad that the master has gotten essentially what he wanted. And yet I don't. Yeah. Because he's not as obnoxious. <laughs> that's terrible to yeah, say. That's fair. So we have Chin Lee also trying to kill the American delegate of interest to everyone on this show. Maybe not our entire listenership, but all of us. The American ambassador, I definitely enjoyed his accent. It was, <laughs> it was fun. It was something. Tra it traveled around a bit. Um, <laughs> yes. But yes, we have did. had worse. Yes, That's we have true. had worse. I, I seem to remember Tomb of the Cybermen with some really interesting non-American American <laughs> expressions. And just wait until the close of Axos. <laughs> oh, boy. But with the American ambassador, maybe it's because, you know, we're watching these episodes from the so long ago. You know, maybe we can dim things maybe too quickly or not quickly enough. But when we start to see what his greatest fear is, <laughs> I had to wonder, like, is it Chinese people that's his biggest fear? <laughs> Or is it dragons? Or is it the dragon representing Chinese people? And he's just, I don't know. Or is it someone dressed up in a dragon suit? Because let me tell you, <laughs> when we get to episode three and see that full costume. Oh, I oh choose boy. to believe that he is a closeted fantasy nerd. <laughs> and his biggest fear is him finding out his interest in dragons. His biggest fear is he fails a saving throw yes. against dragons. <laughs> so I have a question for you guys about that. In doing reading on this story, there were several accusations that this was a little bit racist towards the Chinese. Do you guys think so? A little bit, but it's his fear, I guess, based on how the thing works. So it's... And Chin Lee was played by the writer's wife? Yeah, that's kind of where I was falling, in that I took it to be the American delegate is afraid of China, and that's being manifested as the dragon, and is playing on how he sees China. I mean, with that voice, is it racist against Americans? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's being played in a racist manner, but I do think that the American is being portrayed as someone who is racist. That's a possibility, and you could read it that way, yeah. Yeah, I don't think the story itself is inherently racist, but I do think that they're put, making that a point. A story is not racist just because it may have a racist character in it. We're not portraying the American ambassador as some sort of hero. In fact, he's completely unimportant. And kind of an idiot. Right. He comes into a hotel room, he knocks and just walks on in, the lights go out, he still comes in. I just like the Come fact on. that he even starts acting afraid once she turns out the lights. Yeah. Like, is he afraid of the dark? Is that what's going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we end with Chin Lee becoming the dragon. The American delegate screams. And that brings us into our cliffhanger, episode three, where, of course, we get the doctor and unit to the rescue, along with Fu Pang. And we get our reveal of that thing that was behind Chin Lee's ear from the first moment we saw her, which was so confusing when the first time you see her in the Brigadier's office. And then I realized, oh, there you go. It's that thing that's a little, little implant thing. Mind control. That ties her to the Keller machine. So there's our plot hook as well. It just seems all overly elaborate. I know that the master tends to have these elaborate plots, but dear God, we really had to connect the prison to here, to this, to that. Like, gee, can we just stop? I made reference to it last time we spoke about the master, but he is definitely the wily e. coyote of Doctor <laughs> Who. Just instead of anything that's direct and to the point, it has to be, you know, some sort of, Rube Goldberg contraption of a of a idea to go into effect. I think it goes back to that idea that he's just trying to get the doctor's attention more than anything. Or try to impress him, because that actually comes up later when we see his fear. Yeah, it's the doctor laughing at him. Right, exactly. So it's definitely a competition kind of thing. While we were busy futzing around with the American delegate and the dragon and all that stuff, one thing we missed was Mela took over the prison. The first time. Yeah, because that needed to happen twice. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, dude, we've got to pad out six uh, episodes. Yeah. And, and we did. But you know what? 
having him take over the prison the first time allows Joe to jump into action and shoot a guy right in the ass. And that was totally worth it. It also gives Mela the opportunity to show, again, what an utter bastard he is by pistol-whipping the prison doctor. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nasty. We then have, again, poor Benton not having a good day and is having problems getting the missile moved. Okay. If you had to stand in front of green screen that bad, you would be having a bad day, too. (laughs) <laughs> I want to know why they did that using CSO. It's virtually the only use of it in this entire goddamn story. It's it's like <laughs> in the in the late 90s early 2000s where simple things had to be done in CGI for no other reason <laughs> than they could. Yeah. Yeah, but they did so much of the story actually on location. Why that one little scene? It just makes no sense. They had access to an actual (laughs) missile. And they had access to RAF bases and streets and stuff. Like, just why? Maybe they forgot to film that scene and had to go back and film it in the studio later. We're going to figure out that the company that they hired to do the CSO was just some sort of opportunity for them to do money laundering. (laughs) (laughs) It's Barry Letts' side gig. I don't know where it falls into this, and you already made a reference to it earlier, Anthony, but I also love the master being driven around. I love it. And what I especially love is in the scene in episode three where he's listening to music on his little radio. I don't know what that music is. It sounds like it's from dramatic theater radio, all suspense music all the time, but that just was awesome to me as he like shows up to the prison. So cool. I read somewhere... I don't know if it's what's on there, but at least when it was broadcast, it was King Crimson. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Copyright's a bitch. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I didn't really point out before is that he has a better alias this time, because if I recall, wasn't he like Captain Masters or something? (laughs) The Colonel Masters, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, It's better. (laughs) Keller's better. Yes. It's not quite as obvious. (laughs) It's not an anagram as near as I can tell. It's... It's better. Yeah. Yeah. And by this stage, he's listening into what they're doing, which he's good at doing. And here's what's going on at Stangwell Prison. It's like, all right, I'm on my way. That's wonderful. Doctor's the only one smart enough to figure out, oh, wait, maybe Emil Keller is the master. What? Even before this, he he figures out it was Chin Li as his assistant, which... There are quite a few Chinese people. I don't know if you know that, but there's a lot of them. So just assuming that she was the one was a a bit of a stretch. What? There's a lot of them? Don't tell the American ambassador. (laughs) It's like when people say to me, oh, you're from London. Do you know John? (laughs) The answer is always yes. Yes. And then you say it was so sad the way he died in that brothel like that and just (laughs) go as far as you can. (laughs) Exactly. And we're at the prison and the governor doesn't really seem to care. Joe's one of the hostages and he just doesn't really seem to care. It's like, eh, she might die. Who knows? But then Joe gets that really awesome, bold move and like someone almost gets shot or does get shot. And it's just a big kerfluffle going on because, yes, I want to use that word. Yeah, she grabs Mela's gun. And it's wonderful. And then it's very, very short lived. As one of the policemen, was that Boris Johnson? <laughs> one of them had like a, a massive mop of blonde hair. Before, before we leave this scene, I wanted to point out one thing I really appreciated about Joe in that scene is I'm really tired of in stories where, especially this is when a female character gets the upper hand by grabbing a gun and they do the whole like the gun is shaking in their hand because they're nervous or they don't know how to use it. Joe looked like she knew exactly how to handle a gun. It was established in Terror of the Autons she'd had all this training. Yeah. Oh, that's true. But it's just, Mm -hmm. it's refreshing to see in action, not just as a line of background about a character. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one thing I love about Jo is she is kind of ditzy. She's very compassionate, but she's competent when she needs to be. Yeah. Yes. So Prison Riot take two. Yeah. The master showing up with his equipment and Mela just casually shooting someone in the back because he's an absolute bastard. He kills three people right in that scene breaking out. And I was thinking he probably has the highest kill count on screen in Doctor Who outside of the Brigadier, of course. There's a lot of violence in this serial. There's a lot of people getting gunned down. Also, I'm still not sure how he was going to get a pardon out of this plan, but... That's a huge plot 
problem, in my opinion. We, we mentioned other issues. That's the thing that I that sticks in my craw. Why would a hardened criminal who's probably been around the bin a couple of times, knows people are not trustworthy because he's a criminal dealing with other criminals, why would he believe that the master, a person who he just knows as a scientist who created a machine, would be able to provide him money, provide him a plane ticket, provide him a pardon, provide him all these things? I would even believe that. It's the pardon that gets me. Money, plane ticket, okay. But hey, you're going to help me steal this missile and then I'm going to cause World War III and you're totally going to get a pardon out of it. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, and I'll fly you out to Aruba while the world's going to shit. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to me. Uh, I don't like it. But we get the doctor coming in. I like that the doctor doesn't feel threatened while he's being physically threatened, which is one of my favorite doctor characteristics, I guess, which is always yeah. fun. And then I didn't realize that the master was into the whole handcuff thing. I thought master had like the praise kink going on. And then he's <laughs> the one who's putting someone in, else in the handcuffs. I was a little bit surprised there. <laughs> What is this? Opposite world? <laughs> oh, boy. But this is where we get the doctor brought into the machine. And then this is where, like I mentioned earlier, he goes full Shatner. Very quickly before we get to that, I think in Terror of the Autons, the doctor and the master didn't meet face to face until episode four. Here it's episode three. So I kind of like that it's earlier. We get a bit more time with them facing off against each other. Anyway, on to the Shatner moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was something else. Uh, it was uh, at another to the Gurn, right? To the Gurn count. Yep. Yeah. There you go. And this is where we start seeing some of those prior monsters as well. I noticed both in this and the later one, we get Coquillion, we get a Zabi, we get a War Machine, a Cyberman, and a Dalek. And there may have been one or two I missed as well. I thought I saw a Silurian at one point. But it's pretty cool because at this point in the Pertwee era, the only callbacks we'd had to prior adventures before the show went into color were Unit. Mm -hmm. And here we're explicitly getting mm -hmm. not just A-list monsters, not Cybermen and Daleks, but we're getting obscure shit like Coquillion. Coquillion! <laughs> I mean, I love that. Oh, I do too. Because I, I miss it. That, you know, when we were making fun of the outrageous dragon costume... As, as I watched it on the screen, a small tear ran down my eye. I'm like, oh, oh the time period of the show with goofy monster costumes. I miss it so much. Mm -hmm. It's been, it feels so, feels so long. Oh. I know it was just in the Silurians with the T-Rex costume, but that was like a T-Rex costume. I want something goofy, looking, oh. real oh. goofy looking. And Riley, this is the closest you're ever going to get to a sequel to the Web Planet on screen. I know, I know. <laughs> That's our cliffhanger. And that takes us into episode four, which starts off with more Pertwee gunning, but I'm not adding another one. I think that's the same gun when the whole process has stopped it was evident before and you had mentioned seeing this in black and white but like the color was bleeding everywhere yeah. while watching this and i did yeah. read that it was they did a recent release of a blu-ray for this season and i believe they mm -hmm. may have fixed it up i would love to maybe give it another shot that time to see how clean the colors are because there is one part right here where the doctor and the master are right next to each other and Doctor's, of course, worn out. There's a point where it really looks like there's a red laser pointer staring, yeah. pointing right at the doctor's eye. It was so dis so weird. I did watch the Blu-ray, and having seen the previous color restoration, yes, it's been cleared up. Where this came from was they were using a fairly experimental technique, which they're now quite good at, called, I think it's RSC, Reverse Standard Color, color or something like that. Someone will probably write and correct me on that, but effectively they found that the black and white prints that they converted the original color to had like hidden color information and they were able to extract it to give at least some color restoration which is pretty cool but yeah it was an early one and it was looking a little rough on the first attempt so episode four properly not just color restoration nonsense the doctor nearly dies and yet doesn't take a week off weird yeah he's he's impressive Seeing him all sweaty and weak, that was very reminiscent to me of when you saw him all beaten down during the interrogation scenes in Inferno. I mean, Don Hooten just loves putting him through the ringer. Yeah. And then you have like the, the master trying to like restart his second heart. And I'm like, that wimpy slap is not going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and the master Useless. trying to save him. Just that. Yeah. Like, okay, are you nemeses or what? No, he wants his friend back and he's trying to get his attention. Oh, get a room already. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's, he's into exhibitionism. It's fine. <laughs> 
Did anyone else notice that as Mailer puts the doctor back in the cell, he pistol whips him? I mean, the dude's heart has just stopped, and you're going to pistol whip him? You're an enormous douche, Mailer. <laughs> the worst. I was getting a little worried that we were going to get them things that we used to get in the past with the doctor being out for the entire episode. So I was like, can we just have the doctor awake, please? Please, that'd be great. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, he's awake now. Thank God. I really love the fact that he and Joe get some time in the cell together. I think this is really where the doctor and Joe start getting a really good and deep relationship and mm -hmm. she's very very caring to him i mean this is clearly friendship defining for them i was just gonna say i just worry that joe just cares more about him than he does her that's true he doesn't really seem to really really care about much of anybody at this point yeah i would agree with that okay there's a wonderful transition from one shot to the other where we see the doctor lying down in his bed and there's like a fade from his face to the master's face and I didn't take a lot of note over the direction of this and that kind of scene transition, but that one just really hit me and I thought that worked really, really well. For me, it's one of the only noticeable good things from like a directional standpoint. I have some concerns when we get to episode five and six with some shaky cam bits. I wonder if you have any comments on the score in five and six for a couple of specific instances. <laughs> <laughs> hey now are we gonna get back into fights from the ambassadors of death no 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 we'll, we'll get there <laughs> I, I do like how joe asks for food and then they manage to do their little escape thing because she's the one yes. that does it so much for you know mr venusian aikido or whatever <laughs> slam someone in the face with a tray uh, which only seems to work if they're not expecting it especially not if they have a gun anywhere nearby those inmate guards are idiots. There's definitely a reason that they made their careers as criminals and not prison wardens. I don't know. Based on their actions, I'd say they've got a good future as unit soldiers, considering how well they do in this. <laughs> Which takes us on to the ambush of the convoy with action by Havoc, y'all. No. <laughs> yes. Again, I have Benton's not having a good day. Yates trying to be sneaky. I thought he got shot. Did he actually get shot? No, I don't think so. I think he was just playing. Okay, but at least he's he's still alive. And then, okay, then he's like, oh, can you hear me? And then he's like, oh, man, I'm going to be sneaky and I'm going to figure out what they're doing. In it. And then he gets kidnapped. Bloody typical. Because Yates is useless. <laughs> yeah. He just has this position because he was born to the right class. Oh, -ho. Well, I think that says a lot, though, you know, that just because he's of a higher rank than Benton and always will be it doesn't necessarily mean that he's smarter than Benton because it is Benton who gets back and talks about seeing the prison van or the Black Mariah, as they call it. And it's the Brigadier that that enables the Brigadier to see how close they were to Stangmore and start putting those pieces together. Yes, so my man Benton. <laughs> also, like, why in the world did like a plain Black van have a name like Black Mariah? It's a common term. Is it? For old like, old, like, police and prison vans. I didn't realize that. I first heard about it because of a Nick Cave song. So it's it's primarily <laughs> an English, Australian thing. Thanks for that, because I had no idea. So I'm just sitting here, I'm like, why in the world does it have a badass name? Oh. Go listen to Curse of Millhaven. You'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the prison, the machine can now teleport, which is terribly convenient. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This, I, I think my note for this was, well, this is starting to fall apart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can terrorize whomever it wants, whenever it wants. When it actually teleports and it's like the general wavy cam, I don't mind the wavy cam because I'm like, that's kind of, it's telling you kind of what's going to happen. It's like, oh, it's about to disappear. It's about to disappear. That's fine. When we get into episode five and it's like truly like rocking and shaking and doing all this nonsense, I'm like, oh my gosh. Just, just no. Welcome to the 70s. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt about a lot of the music. That, that synth, that overpowering uh. synth. <laughs> oh. Again, welcome to the 70s. <laughs> At least the early 70s. All right, is that about the end? Because it just... That, that is. It, it shows back up and it affects the Doctor and Joe and that leads us into our cliffhanger and episode five where the machine just disappears because it knows there's better food elsewhere. 
I do like the line of there's something to be said about a pure mind. That's actually kind of kind, doctor. Yeah. You're so nice. <laughs> Barnum has been kind of in and out a little bit, but this is when he becomes a lot more relevant again. Mm-hmm. And I just want to give that man a hug. Yeah, it's really weird because whatever he did before he was lobotomized was clearly severe enough to warrant a pretty significant punishment. Yes. And yet he's played and scripted as incredibly sympathetic. I feel so many feelings for him. And then I get angry when we get into episode six. But again, we'll get there. Mela can't stand being around him. He refers to him as that zombie. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things. Oh, that was in this episode. Yeah, I was not happy with that. I think it would have been interesting interesting to see Mailer and Barnum interact in some way before Barnum was lobotomized, as you put it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's obviously his dislike of Barnum is obviously his fear projecting yeah. about the possibility of him being on the, on the way of being the next one to be processed that manner all right we get some sweet sweet helicopter action and the appearance (laughs) of major cosworth i love cosworth he cracks me up for some reason there's something about him i don't know but he makes me laugh so much especially how he just puts the brigadier off not not over the top just a little irk a little like oh that kind of rubs me wrong way just i enjoy it so much i missed his name when it was first said so i kept referring to him as captain darling in my in my (laughs) (laughs) he does have that kind of feel yes he does and he outranks yates so there you go julie someone between yates and the brigadier we do get a nice little moment speaking of yates where he is captured and tied up and he might have enjoyed that i don't know but there's (laughs) there's that moment where the master tells him okay you can stop pretending like you're unconscious and pay attention (laughs) i love how he sees right through it i just realized something that we missed in a previous episode. And I want to bring it up because it it made me laugh so hard. When the Master is trying to get Mailer on his side and he's telling him about what he's going to pardon, and then he pulls out this convenient projector and explains his plan with, here is a picture of what you're trying to steal. Here's this. It's like, why did you have that set up (laughs) in this office already? Don't you just always have a projector on the ready just in case you need to sew someone your evil plan, Don? I admire his thoughtfulness of wanting to explain to people what he's going to do, unlike some Time Lords in this serial. <laughs> <laughs> and he only makes that offer to Mailer, yet other prisoners are out there doing the work of stealing the missiles, so... Is he expecting, like, Mailer is kind of like their union leader? Like, I'll yeah. provide this to all of you, and this is the money you guys divided it up as much as how, however you like? Did they all get their own PowerPoints? <laughs> <laughs> He's done the assessment of who is the biggest bastard, decided yeah. it's Mailer, and so Mailer can out-bastard everyone else and pistol whip them into submission. But then when we have this scene here in episode five where the doctor gets brought into the office and Mailer is running the show because the master has gone off to deal with the missile, when Mailer explains to the, the doctor what the master is providing him and asks the doctor what he could offer, I know that the doctor is a noble person and wouldn't necessarily lie for the sake of it, but he, the doctor would lie to a criminal, to a person to, to deceive someone that was evil, and Mailer's evil, and Mailer's an idiot. He's accepted that the master would just give him money without showing that he has any or give him a pardon when he shows no power to do so. But doctor should have been like, oh yeah, whatever he's offering you, I'll give you twice. You seem to believe anybody can do anything for you so why not believe me and then we get joe back in a cell i'm really tired of joe just ending up in the cell (laughs) yeah yeah i'm quite over it at this point but we do get a wonderful funny story about sir walter raleigh and a potato but we don't give the end of it it's like the (sighs) editor just didn't care about what he was let's just fade that out (laughs) i really love the scene of the doctor and joe playing checkers and the master walking in and joe shushes him that was great they both shushed him it was awesome that was i think the first time where the doctor and her really operate with some chemistry together Mm -hmm. absolutely Again, this is another Mailer moment, but as the Doctor leaves the cell to go and deal with the Keller machine, did I imagine it? I thought I saw Mailer blowing Joe a kiss, which was extremely unnerving to me. I didn't notice it, but... One of my thoughts Mm. was actually, I'm kind of glad they didn't go down that route Mm -hmm. for Joe being there, because that would have been really uncomfortable. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 
I was very worried about it too when we had our first prison takeover. Again, it's it's a kid's show. I don't think they can fully go down that path. Well, they're killing people left and right, like, and they're lobotomizing people. That's like, true. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like implications of rape of a companion, that's just a little too far yeah. versus lobotomizing a one-off character. I mean, we did have that way back when. We did yeah. have that way back yeah, when. Yeah, we did with Barbara. Mm-hmm. All right. So <laughs> I was going to turn our attention to over to unit so we have benton and the brig coming up with this plan they're having just this really like i called it a soft moment they're just being buddies being friends and then benton got worried about yates and i was just like benton look at you worried about your buddy yates so i just loved that little interaction and then we get to the point where we get to them actually attacking or infiltrating i guess i should say and they are whistling colonel bogey's march which i loved i was like yes this is wonderful reminds me of i think it was bridge on the river Kwai. they used Mm -hmm. that yes i played it in college so i have a soft spot for that song i love the brigadier in disguise (laughs) complete with his fake cockney accent oh yeah the way he sweet talks his way in and there are just these three soldiers following him in his outfit reminded me a whole lot and i think it was supposed to of the master's repairman disguise yeah just a bit but this is also i mentioned earlier a bit of weirdness in the soundtrack there's a musical cue and it's used as they're invading the prison right when they're you know shooting a bunch of people doesn't even remotely fit it sounds like it would be on some early 70s drama about teenage relationships the cue just (laughs) doesn't quite fit and they use it twice i'm like what the hell is that yes before we get to the shootout when they're planning it and they're planning their invasion of the prison cosworth is the one that figures out there's an underground passage and he makes such a wonderful comment where he says it's like a film isn't it (laughs) Oh, really, Cosworth? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, eh? (laughs) Almost like you know you're on TV. And then we have the shootout. And it's kind of brutal. Yeah. You got a whole bunch of people falling off walls. And it's also like, it's a giant complex. It's not just a castle. We've got other outlying buildings and we've got other places that we're trying to get to. And when they first entered and they had already gotten out of the van, I'm like, why in the world are they getting out of the van now? And then I realized how big of a place. And I was like, oh yeah, they need to take over many places. So the sporadic men jumping out of the van, I was like, okay, it's a clown car. (laughs) There's not room for this many. It's the first time you get a real sense of the the scale of the location. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen this story in quite a long time, and I'd kind of forgotten how big the invasion of the prison was or the taking of the prison. I initially thought it was going to be like the Brigadier and three guys and Cosworth and three guys (laughs) in the Underground Passage. And then clearly they've got a few more vans with a few more guys outside, and you see them scaling walls, shooting down insurgents. A brigadier even shoots someone off the battlements. I mean, he's not just a desk monkey. He is getting his hands dirty here. Yeah, the brigadier got his megaphone shot out of his hand. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So we end with Mela using the Doctor and Joe as hostages because of course he does. Joe making an escape attempt and Mela about to shoot one of them and the cliffhanger is with a shot being fired. Episode six. I know I've said it before. I'm not a big fan of these big shootout scenes. I find them tedious and boring and they're for other television shows, not for science fiction shows. What irks me is that I am totally fine for a show like Doctor Who to take 30 seconds to show you what (laughs) happened before, right? On the Uh previous episode, let's catch you up to our cliffhanger moment and then resolve the cliffhanger moment. And this, they once again show all as much of the shooting footage as they possibly could. They then edit out the scene of Mailer talking to the Doctor and Joe, explaining what he's going to do, leading him out of the cell, and then only till we get to the catwalk and then down the stairs in Joe's attempt, that's where we catch up with them. But no, no, we couldn't show him and his conversation with the Doctor and Joe before that. We had to, once again, see stunt actors falling over cliffs and bang, bang, boring, boring, boring. Well, yeah, that's expensive. They want to get their money's worth out of that stuff. Uh, Yeah, man. Do you think Havoc come for free? (laughs) Yeah. Uh. You get the fake out. So the shot was, of course, from Lethbridge Stewart shooting Mailer. And the Doctor's reaction is to yell at him. Yeah. 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 He really reminds me of my dad. (laughs) (laughs) i do love lethbridge stewart's response i'm glad to see you too doctor (laughs) yeah it's wonderful and then yates 
escapes, quote yeah. unquote, escapes. And so he still has a chance to save the day. And we have, after uh, they've recovered the prison, guess who gets made governor of the prison? <gasps> Benton! Yeah, boy. Oh, it's my favorite. <laughs> And I love his face. And then, you know, the brigadier is like, don't get any delusions of grandeur. And I'm like, break. Come on. It's pretty clear that Bitten wants a different job other than being a sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does feel like that in this story. I think it could have been the choreography could have been done better. And like I said, I know I'm jumping around. If you want to point something else out, that's fine. But when we get Barnum, the Doctor and Joe dealing with the color machine back in its old spot in the prison. And then Barnum comes in and then the Doctor realizes that it shuts down, which I have some plot questions about that as well. But when Barnum is scared and wants to leave, and I made a joke about it before, but he literally uses him like a shield. It wouldn't yes. be so yep. bad if he mm -hmm. like held his hands and looked him in the eye and like tried to calm him down. But no, he literally like a cop takes his arm, puts it behind his back, and pushes him towards it. I'm like, yeah. that could have been shot better. That could have... The, the choreography is so bad there. This is where, for me, it really falls apart, is the treatment of Barnum yeah. really bothers me for the rest of the serial. The only one who is nice to him at any point in this mm -hmm. serial is Jo. Yes. 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 She has a real heart of gold. There is one point where earlier, before they realize that the machine won't activate around him, where the doctor pats him on the shoulder almost reassuringly. But otherwise, people are just it relentlessly mean to him. Even Benton is a little impatient with him. Yeah, I think for Benton, it's just that he's also like, oh, crap, I'm acting governor. What am I supposed to do with this? So I think he's overwhelmed, which I'm more OK with, as opposed to the doctor who is just like, how can I utilize this machine in a way that benefits me and it's by using someone else as a human shield who doesn't understand what's going on and i hate that as anthony mentioned in the behind the scenes and i mentioned in my synopsis you know the connections to clockwork orange are pretty clear in the back half of clockwork orange the back half alex's you know had the technique done on him he can't act violently he can't lash out he can't protect himself and even though now he couldn't harm a fly People who see him still see him for who he was before, and he can never be, people will refuse to forgive him, and people then will terrorize him and treat him poorly, and he can't fight back. The same thing is now happening with Barnum. We don't know what horrible thing he did, but he must have done something horrible before. But people now, despite this treatment, maybe can't look past him as to what he is now compared to who he was before, which says a lot about how we view prisoners in a way. Well, it's partially that, but also at the same time, like Benton and really like the doctor, like none of them really knew anything of about him. Like, yes, we know his backstory is as a prisoner, but we don't know what he did. Again, Joe is the only one who shows any sort of compassion. And I don't necessarily expect it out of like the brigadier or any of the unit folks, but you would expect it from the doctor. Yes. Yeah. And to your point there, Julie, we as the audience never find out what Bonham no. has done. We know he must have done something pretty bad, but we don't know whether he was a murderer, whether he did a huge amount of fraud. You know, he could have been a rapist, but we don't find out, leaving us to be sympathetic towards him later in the story. I'm trying to recall, but what was the reason that made the doctor leave the room? I felt like it was a flimsy reason why he had to leave the room and leave Joe and Barnum in there. I think I was talking with the brigadier. Yeah. Okay, but see, once again, it's just, I feel like in that situation, it's such a tenuous situation. It's the most dangerous situation right now. And the yeah. doctor just leaves the room and leaves it to Joe and Barnum. Not to say that Joe isn't capable, but uh, it just doesn't sit right with me. Like, especially for a, for a phone call, have someone relay the message. You don't need to leave. So now we get the brigadier has a plan and then that <laughs> plan fails. So then that we have the circuit as a backup, which is like, okay, we're going to try that. And then the doctor's like, well, I have a better plan because his smug ass uh -huh. is obviously going to say that he has a better plan. And then he goes and again, uses Barnum as a shield and goes to confront the master. 
I love how he was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm going to be able to destroy the master and the machine at the same time. I'm like, no, you're not. That's absolutely not how that's going to work, doctor. And still, the treatment of Barnum is awful. Like, the doctor runs... Joe runs. Joe realizes that Barnum didn't follow them. And she's like, hey, doctor, we need to go. And he's like, no, we're not going back for him. Let's go, Joe. And I was just like, how dare you? (laughs) And I hate that they just carelessly left him there. They don't even go back to pick up his body. No. I want to talk about that a little because he is so kind hearted that once the Keller machine turns on the master, Barnum is the one who stops to try and help him. I mean, obviously, that's not part of the plan, but he's become so innocent through all of this that he decides to try and stop the archvillain of the story and he gets killed for his troubles. It's really hard to watch. Yes, it is. And at the end, it seems like the only person, like you said before, that's really bothered by this is Joe. And when she brings up her concerns, they're just kind of dismissed and she's just given a cup of coffee. Yeah. That's, I mean, like, damn, come on. Made by Polly. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing about the whole Keller machine on Barnum was it was not only dehumanizing because it took away essentially his free mm-hmm. will. But literally no one treats him like a human being anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also the doctor saying about him having a better plan. I'm telling you, a karate chop to a person (laughs) holding a gun is not a well thought out plan. I don't know if you've seen all the memes of people copying supposed like disarming a person with a gun memes and where they do it and then it cuts and all of a sudden they're at the pearly gates. That's what happens when you try to disarm someone with a gun with some sort of karate move. It's just bad. And then again, we find out that the doctor is not as good as he thinks he is because he left the circuit and the brigadier's face at the very end was beautiful and perfect. And I will love his smug face all day. (laughs) I do love how the master calls the doctor to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'll eventually destroy Earth, but I can go anywhere right now and you're not exactly my priority. Bye, bitch. It is uh, definitely the middle act of star trek 2 with khan burying kirk alive yeah and the doctor's butt hurt about it yep that brings us to the end should we rate this yes this time round, don you get to go first i think we've pretty well covered that this story does have a lot of issues in the sense that the plot doesn't make a whole lot of logistical sense I'm still not sure what the Master's endgame was, although if it turns out that all he was trying to do was to get back his dematerialization circuit and everything else was just a smokescreen, I think that would be kind of cool. It seems like there were two different serials kind of crammed together here, one about the peace conference, one about the ramifications of the machine, and it really could have been better told in four episodes. However, I had a really good time with it. It was fun. I finally had some glimpses of Pertwee's doctor not being completely unlikable, and I want to see more of that. I like that Joe got some hero moments. I really liked the Brigadier trying to be a common man to trick them into letting them into the prison. I'm going to give it seven questionable disguises out of ten. All right, Julie, you're up next. I enjoyed most of it. I actually enjoyed the stuff with the Peace Conference, even though it was really kind of bizarre and in the end didn't fit. Really, I think it was because I liked Chin Lee's character. Mm-hmm. And I'm sad that she was not in any more of it than those first couple of episodes. But I'm not going to lie. The thing with Barnum really brought me down real fast, real hard. <laughs> So I didn't really enjoy the ending of this, despite the master getting away and being all smug about it and the brig being smug about it. I just had some really concerns there. So I'm going to give it 6.5 bad dragon costumes out of 10. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right, Riley, you're up next. I need to clarify that I may not like this serial, but I don't think that it was poorly made. Yeah, I have Mm -hmm. an issue with a lot of the plot holes, especially with the master getting the prisoners to work for him. But the story still flows really well and overall kind of makes sense if you let it flow. It isn't a complete mess. The sets look nice. The structure of the plot is good. Pertwee shows more charisma than he has before. Joe kicks some ass. It isn't bad at all. I just don't like it. I want Doctor Who. I don't want a prison movie meets a spy movie with one sci-fi element that is nothing more than a tool so that the prison and spy movies can move forward. Give me some aliens. Give me some crazy planets. 
for God's sakes, even give me a historical at this point. I'm dying here. Wow. <laughs> I feel like the doctor at the end of this serial. I'm jealous of the master. He's got his TARDIS back. He's free to come and go where he pleases while I'm stuck on Earth. That's how I feel. Trapped on Earth with this show right now. I will try to balance out the appreciation of the good craftsmanship of the serial with my own personal taste. So I give it four and a half Sergeant Bitten's employment opportunities out of ten. <laughs> Ooh. I think I'm more at the Don end of the spectrum than the Riley end of the spectrum with this story. I really enjoyed it. There are, as Don mentioned, elements that don't make sense. The Master's plot is needlessly complicated. I still think he's just doing what he's doing to get the Doctor's attention by kind of screwing with him. Even so, needlessly complicated. The treatment of Barnum is pretty hard to watch, as Julie mentioned. The idea that the British government would authorise the lobotomy of prisoners. I mean, this isn't too long after the abolishment of the death penalty in the UK, but even so, that's tough to think that the government of my home country would authorise that. Without knowing there's a weird thing inside. Yeah, a little alien inside that sucks on people's brains, basically. Yeah, that's pretty hard to believe. The after effect is horrible. I mean, it's a huge moral question. But that said, it's enjoyable. I enjoyed seeing Captain Chin Lee. She was definitely a highlight. I enjoyed seeing kind of the camaraderie of the unit family, as we will come to know it, with Benton and Yates and the Doctor and Joe and the Brigadier. I, I feel like, aside from the Brigadier being grumpy, probably due to sleep deprivation, we're starting to see a good rapport between them all. And it was nice to see Benton get his moment in the sun. This story has its faults, but it's still really enjoyable. And so for me, I'm with Don. Seven brain-sucking aliens out of ten for me which gives us a story average of 6.25. We are once again sadly out of time. We will be back next time as the claws of Axos embed themselves deep within the earth. But for now, as always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Havoc Don't Come for Free, was recorded on Tuesday the 31st of August 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at @watchers4d, And you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, when coming up with methods to take over the world, make sure that you can keep any sentient life forms that you might be utilizing under control.